Hi folks, Timothy Harvey here. In a moment of purest optimism, Nikki and I thought that maybe we could make our way through this week's episode reviewing Sci-Fi Channel's Channel Zero No End House in one sitting, and that did not happen. So we've broken the episode up into two parts. Both of them are about an hour long. Conveniently, there was a decent spot to actually put pause, break it in half, so it works out pretty well. Even so, the episode does end a little bit abruptly, and so obviously you'll be going, well, where's the rest of it? Well, the rest of it will be out in a couple of days. As always, we thank you so much for listening. Now, here's the first half of Nikki and my discussion of Channel Zero's No End House. Welcome to Family Movie Nightmare. Hello, and welcome to Family Movie Nightmare, the show where a father and his spawn discuss horror media. Specifically, tonight we are going to be talking about Season 2 of Channel Zero from the Sci-Fi Channel. This is Nikki Kay, and as always, I am joined by the wonderful Timothy Harvey. Hello there. And uh, this is also episode two for us. Yeah. Well, although we have recorded, you you guest hosted on Zompocalypse Now, the other podcast that I do, mm-hmm. where we subjected you to the latter half of the season of Fear the Walking Dead, and you survived. I did. Dustin and I have been watching the new season of The Walking Dead, and little plug for my show. Uh, over there, uh, Dustin Adair and I do Zompocalypse Now, which we cover mostly the Walking Dead series, although when the show is off, we cover other stuff as well. We spent several several weeks covering Teen Wolf because Dustin loves that show, and I had no reference point, so I was just like, how does everyone in this town have a bomb shelter? But anyway, um, <laughs> so weird. But that's the show that we do there, so we hope that you'll listen to that as well. Um, but it's very fun. So the two of us have been watching the new season of The Walking Dead, and while it is not without its own sins, it has actually started off pretty strong. So we'll see how that goes. But that's another thing. So listen if you like. <laughs> <laughs> I know that I had a lot of fun making it, but we are into our second season of Channel Zero. The first season, uh, Candle Cove, was absolutely delightful. Although I will admit that we didn't talk about it as much as I I think we should have. We were rather vague, and uh, Tim and I have discussed going at it at a different approach this time. We are definitely going to spoil you guys. We are going to... uh, This is is a show that likes being vague and leaving things unanswered, but we are going to discuss the things that are in fact answered we're going to give names we're going to give where stories end and there are there are cast members that do not reach the end of this series which i i definitely respect the showrunners for doing no one is safe in this horror series no no they're not now one of the things that we have to bear in mind is that when you're doing a show like this, we try and do a pretty good job of making it something that you can listen. If you haven't seen the show, you can listen to us, then you can go watch it. Well, the problem, of course, with reviewing something 
without giving away spoilers is that it's a very fine line. And with a show like this, Mm -hmm. there is so much ambiguity and it's intentional ambiguity on, on behalf of the, of the people making the show that we could go like super vague and you'd be like, I don't even know what they're talking about anymore. And that could be the entire show. And we don't want to do that. And no, and I think it's important a little bit to talk about specifics because as something else based on a creepypasta, which of course all of the Channel Zero shows have their inspirations. And I think that's a, we have to make sure that qualifier there, especially for this next season, which is, I have not watched yet, but everything that I've read has said, well, they kind of looked at the source material and went, that's an interesting idea. And then they kind of did their own thing. Uh, to, to be fair, not every creepypasta can be Candle Cove. And right. that's something that's I definitely want to come back to because, <laughs> wow, this actually okay. No, finish your thought. <laughs> well, I was going to say that the the source material here is very much a different kind of creepy pasta than the source material for Candle Cove was. Whereas yes, it Can- is. where the 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 horror of Candle Cove, the creepy pasta was in a sort of insidious, creepy, what, you know, what is the nature of reality kind of rug pulled out from underneath you fairly gently, but still coming out from underneath you, that mm-hmm. that the mood that the original story, Candle Cove, was, and how the first season dealt with that was a very specific thing. Here, the source material is very, very different. It is. We have um, the creepy the 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 creepy pasta that we are pulling from is is of the same name, No End House. It was created by Brian Russell, who you can read uh, more works from at from Brian's Desk and that'll include No End House, No End House 2, Maggie, No End House 3, Origin of Ending, and Returned to No End. Unfortunately, I cannot suggest reading these because the, in, in my personal opinion, No End House, the creepypasta is not very good. So I enjoyed, and I, I will I will put air quotes that you can't see, I enjoyed <laughs> the first one in the sense that my my sort of very visual filmmaker mind could sort of run the imagery in my head of what the first mm-hmm. one was doing. I thought, well, you know, and, and there's there's potential there. And the ending of it is that is, I thought the ending was for that particular story relatively satisfying. It was. It was. There's definitely parts of it that work. However, Um, (laughs) yes, I read. I read part two and I read part three. I have not read the fourth part. You went further than I did. And unfortunately, I felt. I felt that it was a law of diminishing returns. The second one had. Uh The second one I didn't dislike because it was told from a different point of view. I thought at least that was interesting. And I didn't think it was as strong as the first one, and there were problems with the first one. Um, but the third mm-hmm. one, I felt very much was an example of... So there's a thing that happens in storytelling, and especially in some kinds of horror storytelling, 
where people think they need to explain things they do not need to explain. And this author definitely likes to reiterate points over and over again. There was an issue in the first one that it was very overwritten. Things are kind of beaten. Points are beaten to death in the writing. But you know what? I think in terms of putting, you, you write a piece of short fiction and you put it out into the world. And there's a certain amount of bravery to that uh, for a lot of people. You know, that's a very, very scary thing. So I'm not, I'm not going to, I don't want to bash the original, the original No End House too terribly much just because it's a risky thing to throw that out into the world. Uh, without yes. without a publisher behind you, without a copy editor, without all the things, you just you write your thing, you put it out in the world, and people are going to let you know what they think. I read the comment section, <laughs> and oh, you know that's always a dangerous place to go because comment sections are where we yeah, keep the yes. monsters. <laughs> but but there was unfortunately by the third by the third part of the story, it was like, okay, you have now taken the things that made the first one at least interesting to me and you've explained them and now it's it's kind of like oh, dissecting no. a joke is like dissecting a frog he when you're done he explains it yeah oh, no. don't don't you know so and and if you and for those of you who are not creepypasta readers and don't really have the reference point for this sort of thing here's an here's an example from a recent film um, when rob zombie decided to remake Halloween 1 and Halloween 2, which were things that did not need to happen. And as much as I enjoy Rob Zombie as a, you know, if I want to sit there and crank the music up and listen to the heavy, you know, guitar riffs, he's great for that stuff. And I love his imagery and his horror, you know, his he's a, he's a musician who loves horror imagery and that can be a lot of fun. And he's made some good movies, but he tried to explain Michael Myers in his Halloween movies. And what makes Michael Myers and characters like Michael Myers scary is that there is no explanation. There is no, and this is why though this is why they are the way they are. And it's like, okay, now you've explained him, and he's not scary anymore. In fact, he's kind of sad, and I don't need that. It's just a different story then. It's oh, yeah. not a horror story anymore. It's a it's a sad cautionary tale of. Well, I haven't seen the Rob Zombie, so I can't make it an accurate. Um, no, you're you're fine with cautionary analog, tale because but... it essentially is it's you know uh, abused child emotionally and physically abused child grows into a monster and mm -hmm. in in you want to get psychological sure this is a thing that happens but that does not a horror icon make sorry no and it is it definitely it it changes. The original. Sure. It, it when you place it into context, because I don't think that necessarily explaining something ruins it. It's how it's explained and within what kind of context it's explained. Because you can explain things well and still leave enough there. But in this case, the Channel Zero Candle Cove explains where Candle Cove came from. It doesn't. But it doesn't explain how Eddie created the characters, just the characters came from him. It doesn't explain why Jawbone's real name is the Skin Taker or why he needs to be created. It doesn't explain why Eddie has these powers. Or even if 
uh, Mike has them too. Right. These are things that are left unanswered that allow for uncertainty. And because ultimately, whatever the audience can create in their heads is going to be fucking scarier than what you have made. It's just that there's something wonderful and horrible about ambiguity and the best horror marries that with solid things that are true and definable oh sure i mean you don't you don't need to know the exact mechanism for how the demon came to earth or the ghost the, the killer ghost became the killer ghost or your you know the backstory of every alien monster that invades the planet that's not what makes it scary the details of its you know the a certain amount of backstory can provide a really cool context for a monster or, or an antagonist at least but it doesn't you don't have if you explain it into the ground it loses the uncertainty that any of this sort of thing any kind of supernatural occurrence if you could explain it all the way down it wouldn't be supernatural anymore no it would just be science yeah and there's when when it comes to the creepy pasta a lot of the horror imagery that Brian evokes is extremely cliche it it's the devil and darkness and falling and isolation and self-mutilization and bugs and these things by themselves could be very interesting and explored in ways that are are genuinely terrifying, but they aren't necessarily in his narration. Some of that ends up, I think, being the setting of the story versus the setting of the story on the TV show. Because, mm -hmm. so, so some differences, some, there are significant differences between the two types of story. And we talked about this last week, how you, if you change, you take, move a story from one medium to another, you're going to make changes. You have to. But yes. in the context of, of the the, fur, the creepypasta itself, it's told from a person's point of view, a single individual who goes into the house on their own. In the TV show, that's not what happens. It is two, yes. two friends who know some other people, and they go into this house. We're recording this in October, and there are a lot of haunted houses that are open now. And it's like going down to a haunted house. It's a particularly interesting situation that gets them there. The creepypasta also plays with this. It's, um, there's a lot of, especially in the first couple of rooms, and there's nine rooms in the creepypasta, and there are six rooms in the TV show. And the first couple of rooms in the creepypasta are Halloween-themed um, in the sense that they look like they were stolen off of the shelves from Target. And uh, it's very funny. Uh, and kind of, kind of pathetic. But the TV show makes the No End House into an art installation which I fucking love. To the point where outside of the No End House is a plaque that includes No End House, Artist Unknown, and then the materials that 
create it, including mortar and chalk.、Mm-hmm. And it's very artsy. It's very cerebral in its presentation, which kind of makes me think that the the showrunners of this really do love marrying art with horror. They, you know, they brought the guy, the performance artist in for Jawbone and let him just, you know, do his thing. Have a nice little portion of episode six where he got to set himself on fire because that's always fun. And then this, they spend the the first episode just kind of luxuriating in artsy fartsy bullshit in the No End House itself, which is really cool. I I really love the visuals that they choose to use. Well, they understand very strongly that that if you're going to make a television show and you've got the ability to do. You don't have the the broadcast television restrictions, which honestly, the broadcast television broadcast television restrictions are not anywhere what they used to be. You know, you had shows like Hannibal,、mm-hmm. which was all horror imagery, and it was very graphic、oh, for television.、So, uh, it looked amazing, so pretty, and so something like this, where、so、you don't、gorgeous. have to worry about even those restrictions, they really allowed themselves to recognize that the imagery. Is part of the storytelling, and、mm-hmm. it's not just the character development. It's not just the dialogue. It is the visuals, and there's a lot of horror to be mined out of very, very well composed shots and very smart use of special effects. They keep using practical effects. There's there's more obvious CGI in this.、Um, In this series, if only because there's a lot of video distortion, they take footage and they they、um, morph it into itself, and then go over it later and and scrub out people's faces. There's some a really cool effect when、um, memories are something that we see. Characters' memories come up often, and we are both shown it with the characters in it as they are. Meant to be remembered, and then after they have been scrubbed out, and they just become these blue black ink blobs that are very very cool and definitely digitally enhanced, and and you know, gone through a computer. And then there's the no end house where there's these beautiful plaster molds of the characters' faces. The very first room they come in and. It's eight people have been have have come into the house, and slowly they realize, holy shit! All of these busts are our faces. It's just us. We are bald, and we have been made into statues. And then the lights come off, and they come back again. Everybody's faces are totally busted except for one character's. The crew that goes into the house. The eight that go into the house are not the eight that the story focuses on. Our characters are Margot,、uh, her best friend Jules, their childhood friend JT, a guy that they met at the bar named Seth, and Backpackman, also known as Dylan. And I don't actually remember him ever telling anyone his name. It just came up eventually. And I wrote it down in my notes. 
I don't remember when he introduced himself either, but he has his own story. And it's completely separate from the um, the small microcosm of Margot's immediate friend group and Seth, who just comes. He's just cute guy at bar. Okay, so this is our cast. Who do we discuss first? Because every single one of these people have their own little journey and interact with the house in different ways. Because once they get through all six rooms, they are transported into a basically tiny city of uh, bullshit, of constructed horseshit lies. So basically the first six rooms, they cover that basically in the first episode. They come Mm -hmm. back to those rooms uh, at various points in the series, but they go through this escalating series of surreal kind of uh, threatening, but not so much threatening that you're just going to turn tail and run. Although there is one character who is just this random guy who clearly gets killed off in between. The lights go out, and when he comes back, he's gone, except for a blood smear. There's, okay, the room that he gets fucked up in, there is a random-ass person and and a scary mask who shows up, threatens every character in, in very... Either he walks around or he pushes them or he gives them a stare or he goes up to Margot and he whispers in her ear. And then he just fucking murks a guy and disappears. And of course, everybody in the room is kind of like, ha ha ha, look, it's one of the, they were just actors, Uh, you know, they're still looking at it as as sort of a a haunted house experience. Except for the chick who came in with the guy who got murked and then she's like, no, I'm gone. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, this is not for me. So these characters initially and throughout the show are very intertwined and the main character, although there, you could argue it's it definitely is an ensemble cast. The main character really mm-hmm. is Margot, and yes. and she is a young woman whose father has recently, well, a year ago, died. And there's she found the body, and he apparently committed suicide. There are questions about his death that are still hanging over her, and the reaction she she grieved. You know, obviously, uh, you know, she just lost, she had a very close relationship with her father. And it very much impacted her life so much so that her best friend, Jules, kind of pulled away from her. She went away to college and she kind of just pulled away. And it's this has left sort of a uh, a scar in their relationship. There's there's a, a place where where although they have not really talked about it, Margot was very hurt by this. And yes. clearly Jules did not really know how to talk about it or how to deal with it. So there's this tension there between the two these two people who are in many ways, like I said, Margot's the main character, but it is kind of a duo main character because Jules is incredibly important to the story. Margot's story with her father is the one that's explored visually from room three onward we are just with Margot. we see what the house has decided to create to fuck with her mm-hmm. it's almost entirely about her father's death except for creepy guy who hangs out behind a mirror and i don't know who he is and i don't have a 
I I love that he's just creepy guy. He's just creepy nightmare guy that <laughs> the laughing that, guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. Who who later becomes grandma uh or, or like old old teacher that freaked out Jules. But yeah, he he's just a... looks like he's dressed up as grandma as like as if the wolf from Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah. <laughs> if we saw the wolf. Yeah. In grandma drag and oh god anyway so she's the person the show answers the most questions about the other characters their story is either left more open for interpretation or uh is intentionally withheld in order to be part of the climax the character who gets the least development mostly because he fucking dies is jt and I am very curious what your interpretation of JT is, Tim, because I have a character that I write who he is very much like. And um, so I have strong opinions about his character. And I'm curious what yours are. So so JT is like the childhood friend that they've, he's, just, he's <clears> this <throat> guy they know. And he is this sort of geeky not super awkward but just sort of you know that kind of i would say he's uncomfortably awkward so he goes in with them and he once they get past the six rooms and they get into this basically this pocket universe where it's it's their Mm. neighborhood but it's not i mean it looks like the place they live and so he goes home quote unquote home and when he gets there, he finds he's already there. He has a doppelganger. Yeah, there's another version of himself there making out with this pretty girl. And there's this really, there's this, okay, so <laughs> we're we're kind of bouncing around, but there's really no way to get around that because the story, as the story unfolds throughout the show, it bounces around as well as you see these various things happening to these characters. His particular piece of the story that, that, We'll have to kind of dovetail back into everybody else's here. When he goes to this, they all everybody kind of splits up once they've gotten through this very weird little house and into this. Where are we? How are we in this neighborhood that is our? We think we're we think we're out. We think we we think we've gotten out of the house. They make it through it's this time to go home. We just had this terrible experience. It was very uncomfortable. We saw a lot of shit we can't unsee, and now I'm going to go to sleep. Right, and the car didn't work. So we had to walk, and now I'm exhausted. Right. So bye. So they think they think everything's fine, which is kind of the way that the creepypasta itself ends: is that he makes it through the house and he gets home, and then he suddenly realizes that the the number the the number ten on the door to his house means it's room ten. So here they think they're 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 going home to their neighborhood. They've all walked home, and he walks home and discovers that there's a double of him there with this pretty girl, and the double is saying, "Yeah, so." I'm you. Uh, I'm a better version of you. And Mm -hmm. I have memories, but I don't have a context for them. You know, I, we, we share the same favorite ice cream, but I don't know what it really tastes like. And so he starts making out with the girl and JD is like, can I do that? And like, I made her up, right? I can snog her too. Right. And he's, and his doppelganger's like, I don't think she likes you, man. She hasn't looked at you this whole time. 
which is just she doesn't come up by the way she just disappears after episode two well there's a whole lot of people and... in this world that have cl- they're they're heroes of their own story except they didn't make it through <laughs> they didn't get out no uh, they are hollow there are a number of there are a significant number of victims of this environment that are lurking around the show and we don't get their stories but so this other JD, this duplicate, um, who I've seen referred to as uh, Alpha JD, <laughs> or it's self-proclaimed you know. Alpha. Yeah, he um, he decides he doesn't. He wants to be the only JD, and so in a particularly well done moment of violence, he picks up a bottle and beats his uh, the the original JD to death. And the camera it's, doesn't linger. And it on, goes. The camera doesn't. It goes and goes. The camera doesn't linger on the violence. It lingers on the blank face of the girl. Yes. Well, these dull thuds happen in the background as he is being bludgeoned by an empty bottle of bourbon. These dull, wet thuds. Ew. <clears throat> oh, Good sound design. Fantastic yes. sound design for the show. Oh, it really is. It's very interesting. JT's character is a wonderful look into the complex nature of narcissism and deep self-loathing and insecurity. The character is so... (sighs) He's very intelligent. This is a character that is constantly making references and, and referring to things and trying to figure everything out and kind of also trying to be the smartest one in the room. And he's deeply insecure. He wants to... He, he's, he likes Jules. He tries to hit on Jules several times. And she's like, dude, I watch you go through puberty. It's not attractive. <laughs> and he just kind of looks like a wounded puppy. fact that he's kind of okay with just this chick being a voiceless object of affection is a very interesting writing choice and just showing how he deeply wants some kind of connection with another person preferably someone of of the opposite gender who he's attracted to of course you know the better version of him can get it without even trying he comes across in many ways as a kind of a stereotypical teenage boy with a kind of stereotypical mm-hmm. teenage boy insecurities. He likes the girl who doesn't like him. He's a lot of what he does seems to be reaction to being to wanting to wanting attention, not necessarily being like, look at me, look at me, look at me, but notice me. Yes. Notice me. I'm worth noticing. I I I know that I'm not doing it right, but I could learn to do it right. And if you just gave me the chance, man, if you just fucking so to some degree if you taught me. Yeah, he's some degree he's kind of, he's kind of sweet in a way. Except we aren't and and I say that recognizing that we only get a little bit of time with the real JD. Once his doppelganger decides that there can be only one and decides he's going to replace him and I would argue that that's JT. I would argue that he is 
he's a very opportunistic character. He once he once he decides that he wants something, he tries to make it happen. I would say that that there might not be enough evidence based based on what happens to the other characters and the interactions with some of the other denizens of this world. I don't know that we get a fair representation for the very for starting with the very simple fact that we have no indications that JD is going to be remotely violent with the with the original but very quickly after meeting his original version his copy murders that's him. why i say that i that's why i say he's self-loathing oh he might certainly he might certainly be self-loathing the, the fact that his his he creates himself he creates himself to feast upon because we find out that the denizens of the no end house are cannibals they are referred to by the no end house itself that they are cannibals but he creates himself to feast upon ends up fucking himself over because he ends up murdering his source of food all of the all of the clues that we get about the creations is they they come from the host and they are whatever the host believes most strongly about that person they are capable of violence in that they get hungry enough that it becomes their only drive. He has not existed long enough to be hungry. He just is put in a situation where he will not get any consequences for his actions. Because this isn't real. It's a very dark, it's a very dark take on what's someone might be willing to do to make their life better i can i can see that but there's enough ambiguity for me into what we see Mm. of him before and what we see of his doppelganger and the reason i say that is because the circumstances around what happens to jules when she interacts with her whatever it is cannibal Uh, yeah it's different than anybody else's it is very it is very strange and so the question that there's so much ambiguity with what the house does to people that and why it chooses what it does yeah so i just don't know i mean there's 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 a coldness to jd's duplicate right off the bat that doesn't seem to be there in the original. And again, we're only with this original character for a relatively short period of time. If the show had been about him and then mm-hmm. his duplicate took over like three episodes in, I think I'd have a much better sense that the duplicate was a fairer reflection uh, mm-hmm. or a truer reflection than what I, I ended up reading because... I mostly think that he's a fairly accurate representation because he acts exactly the same as JT did around his friends. Or that's just, you know, this is something... It's it's the monster in camouflage. It's trying to... True. You know, it, it has the memories. It has the memories, but it doesn't have the context. So it's just... It's playing a role without the emotions because it doesn't care about these people because it can't. 
it doesn't know what that means. It knows that it do, it knows that it did. It knows that it has memories of caring about these people, but it doesn't know what that means. So it's, Fair. we we could actually spend an entire episode talking about each one of these characters, but we're not going to do that because <laughs> no, because we have to get through. Okay, so JT gets killed by himself, which is very fun. And then the duplicate duplicate attempts to like you know, we mentioned reinsert itself into this group of people. Yes, and he def he is one of the characters who's like, okay, let's leave now. Let's go. I want to. I want to leave now. Another character that has a has a smaller role, similar to JT, in that he uh, he meets an untimely end, is Dylan Backpackman, who was in the uh, No End House last year. He has come back, and he is very driven. And he's fucking, he's a fucking sociopath. I mean, he's not, he's, he's damaged as fuck. He's not incapable of feeling feelings. He's just really messed up and it leads him to be very violent. He is very driven because he is going to, he, he came into the house originally with his wife and he's the only one who made it out. And he has tracked down the house appearing again because it doesn't stay in the same place and he is determined to go in and get his wife out and he has become so focused that anyone else is ultimately they're useful as long as they're useful and if they're in the way they've got to be gotten out of the way and if that means stabby bits then stabby bits it is Yes, and he has no remorse for the cannibals within the house. It, he has, he does prioritize the safety of the real people, but cannibals are just fucking. He he destroys oh, yeah. all of them. He's he is the Rambo of this small crew, at least until later when Jules takes up that moniker. But she's way cooler. Well, we get a we get a sense of just what he's willing to do in fairly early on that once once he has gone off to look for his wife we briefly see what appears to be his wife running up to him and saying you know oh there you are i've been looking for you let's get out of here and he's like hang on i remember when you got that shirt and i know that that shirt is still hanging in the closet and then he just straight up shoots her in the head because he knows she's not real there's no hesitation. There's no... He looks at the situation. He goes, that can't possibly be the real thing because that shirt is back in the real world. You're not real. Bang. And the show does this really cool thing where the camera sweeps down and it lingers just long enough that you think, because we don't know the rules of this new place just yet, it sweeps down just long enough for you to think maybe her body's disappeared because the man who is watering his lawn has not reacted to her death whatsoever however the lingering ends and there is her corpse and it's so very masterful it's just a small touch there's just the lightest visual touches in this direction in the show's direction that i just adore and that was one of those moments you quickly come to realize that the environment is not, if, if nothing else, you come to realize the environment is not normal because how people react no. or don't react. 
you know, you find people in cages in the middle of a cul-de-sac, and it's like, that's just a thing. Or this guy watering his lawn while a woman is shot in the head. Or And this is a recurring thing where really bizarre things are happening to these characters, but the neighbors don't react. And uh, eventually, though, Dylan does find his wife again, and it's his real wife. However, she has forgotten him, and she believes she is married to a different man. And he shows exactly how far he is willing to go to get her out, in that he will not give her a choice. She, Lacey, who is actually the character that we start the series with, we see her trying to escape the no-end house. And the very first sequence before the, the credits roll, she becomes Dylan's captive for the rest of her short life. And it's very, very tragic. It is tragic, but it's also very odd. And I think that there's something, there's something rather disturbing. And yet, it's 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 a they they balance a fine line, because mm-hmm. in another context, Dil- everything that Dylan says and everything that Dylan does to her, and when he bra- when he comes to the house and says you're my wife, and she goes you're not, I'm not your wife, I'm married to someone else, and he basically, at that point, outside of this context, everything he says and does is what you would expect from a crazy person who has done a home invasion and he is now trying to sit there and tell this total stranger that they are married and they are in love and she is terrified for her life. And outside of this context, he's the villain. Yes. And she is rightly terrified. Now, inside this context, he legitimately is trying to save her at any cost because the the no-end house consumes memories. That is what it feeds on. That is the... That is what it, they mean by cannibals. Yeah, it eats, it eats the memories of its victims. And so her memories have been eaten and replaced with these memories of this, this false husband. And so he is legitimately attempting to save the woman he loves who we saw attempt to escape this place. Her true self does not want to be there. But he is just so fucked up at this point, just so traumatized, he can't verbalize or or waste the time trying to verbalize. Or treat her kindly. He's just so focused and so obsessed and driven on getting out at any cost, knowing that they are inside essentially a hostile organism. And he is determined to be as violent and unforgiving as he has made the house out to be he is he is inva- he is an invading force and he wants to tear his way back out and you get the sense that once they're out he will be as gentle and as loving and as patient with her he will get her the help that she needs but right now but he, for now yeah i mean his so it's it's a it's an interesting fine line that I was really kind of surprised that a they made it work that well for making him have the lines of a villain 
And yet mm-hmm. still, I was going, I would like to see him succeed. I would like to see oh, him. Oh, yes. Because it's, it's, a, it's, it's one of those, it's a classic story. It's the classic story of, of the love, you, you, your, your loved one is trapped and you go to rescue them and you will let nothing stand in your way. Yes. And if you are like me and have any experience with fan fiction, it's the amnesia plot. I love amnesia plots. So this was, it was wonderful seeing it played as horrific as as it truly is for the the person on the other end of it. They were un, they were unashamed and unafraid of going that far. And I ended up really enjoying Lacey and Dylan's tragic tale of a, of a completely so they don't get out you know no they don't <laughs> it sucks yeah i mean for when when well and we're 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 jumping ahead here for to get to their end but as everyone else is dealing with their stories they all attempt to escape and in the course of the escape she is killed and then he in order to try and let the other people escape stays behind to hold off their pursuer and it doesn't end well for him because once his wife's dead he has nothing to live for at this point no he wants to burn the world to the ground and he plans on just staying in it to do it we really can't go into uh margot jules and seth individually because they are so intertwined but as we've stated margot uh lost her father and much of the six room um the the four okay so room six is the pocket dimension so it's really rooms three through five that directly deal with margot psyche room three is creepy laughing man behind the mirror that she has had nightmares about room four and five are directly about her father's death and when she gets to room six, when she gets into the pocket dimension, her father is alive because the no-end house has created him out of her memories. And in order for him to survive, he must consume her memories one by one. He is her cannibal, but he is also her father in that she he is everything that she remembers and has idealized and wondered about her father since he has died and so he loves her and he is also the prime antagonist for the majority of the series that's kind of a misdirection that the show does beautifully it is it is but it's also okay. So the actor, so the actor is John Carroll Lynch, and and John Carroll Lynch is one of those character actors that you have seen in a bazillion things. Okay, he was in the Drew Carey Show, uh, he's been an American Horror Story, he was in uh, Grumpy Old Men and Face Off, in uh, Pushing Tin. I mean, he's he's one of those actors who you just see all the time. He's a fantastic character actor, and he becomes of these remaining characters 
because let's face it, JD's not important. Uh, his no. the, the basic the basic end of his story is his double discovers that without his original he's starting to decay and fall apart because you know he has to he was designed to feed off his original and now that his original is gone it ain't going so well for him he ends up dying because Dylan's like you're not real kill you um, <laughs> so so her Margot's father becomes the fourth part of this. Of these, this four group characters, the uh, with Margot, Jules, Seth, and and Margot's dad. He is driven by his need to feed off of her memories to the point where, despite his better intentions, he really can't control himself. There's wonderful bits of acting where he genuinely tries and is consumed to the point of of almost incoherent babbling trying to convince her to willingly give him what he thinks he might need and it's terrifying it's a very wonderful scene up until the sixth episode you have this dynamic where he is both appealing in that he is the father that she misses terribly, but he's also terrifying in that he needs from her something that she does not want to give and shouldn't give, which is her memories. And he, so he's basically consuming portions of her life to survive. Jules is dealing with her own thing her own cannibal creature except hers is this this sphere in the basement if you've ever seen the the british tv series the prisoner uh they had this big bubble thing they they called rover and it would if you tried (laughs) to escape from the village um that that the characters were trapped in this thing would come bounding along the beach and swallow you up and take you away and so it's kind of looks like that and and we never really get an answer for what this is, but I have a theory. So uh, Jules is Margot's best friend, and we get a piece of character dialogue where she is discussing things with JT before they decide to go to No End House. And she mentions offhandedly that she once found a book describing Sakubai. And it had a deep effect on her. She describes it as making her neck and ears get hot. And from that moment forward, I was just waiting for the shoe to drop that she was in love with Jewel, with was in love with Margot. And it technically happens. We see later that she does, in fact, while Margot is asleep tells her several times, I love you. So what I believe the um, amorphous blob is, is a combination of her repressed homosexuality being mixed in with a kind of a fetish about being overpowered and preyed upon. Because she, 
she is drawn to her cannibal in a way that none of the others are. It comes to her when she is alone, and she is compelled to come towards it. And when it feeds off of her, she it seems to be an almost euphoric uh, experience for her. Oh, it's overtly sexual. I mean, it's it's very yeah. she she's coming. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and it's it's, over, it's an overtly sexual scene every time you see that, and it's very disturbing in the sense that where where it, okay, so some of these it, with when, with Margot, it's almost a case of emotional blackmail. Oh yes, and with with Jules, it's a mixture of desire that. Mick, that is is part of this, which is really disturbing. Now, sex and death have been part of horror stories forever, and so mm-hmm. it fits. But for a show that the only other sexual relationship we see is not a healthy one, uh, it, it, no. it at all. I mean, it kind of. It on one hand, one of the characters thinks it is, but it's not, and. Mm. And it's this the the other sexual experience we get is Jules with her sphere of with something inside it that has got fingers and a face and yeah, there's figures inside that are writhing and touching. Uh, later, it it is implied that the figure inside is some form of Margot uh, when she tries to confront and actually ask this thing questions it starts playing back uh, Margot's voice at her Mm -hmm. and the face that is thrusting out vaguely resembles Margot I could not for sure say that it was the actress inside but there were somewhat feminine features oh yeah um well, and I think that and, I think that it's a, they did an interesting balancing act. That if you yes. are, I think if you're attuned to recognizing uh, two characters who love each other, and one of them might be more in love with the other, and you're you're ready, you're you're willing to see that it's there. And I think that if it's not if it's not something you are necessarily going to be as receptive to. In a, in a an ability to see, because uh, some people don't, yes. right? And yeah, it, there's plausible deniability, and I, you know, as as a as a queer person who prefers to be referred to as queer, um, it it's sad that it's left up to ambiguity, but at the same time, I have very rarely seen a an exploration of the complexities and the actual like shame and and fear that comes with being a girl who's fallen in love with your or is it at least attracted to the idea of being in a relationship with your best female friend like that's hard it sucks i know that from experience and very rarely have I seen it shown on screen in such a respectable way. And I understand, I almost respect it more that it it's kind of left as an Easter egg for 
the queer kids in the audience to look at and see, oh, fuck, it's me. Without it being, without it being so overt that people can, can, uh, be, be shitty about it. <laughs> what I found really interesting about their relationship is that whether or not you read it as her, just this really, really strong friendship or Jules loving Margot in a, if nothing else, more than a friend. And, and let's be honest, if I think, I think you would have to be fairly oblivious to not see that there is something there between these two and it's in whether it's whether it's a truly truly powerful strong friendship that is clearly survived some really really traumatic experience um but it also is this kind of real connection that Jules has with Margot and and it ends up being the relationship that the show holds up as as heroic. Oh yeah. But I think that I think that you in the hands of another set of writers in the in a different kind of show it would have been resolved in a way that fit the romantic model A or it fit the just friends model and it doesn't do that. It never actually sits there and goes this is the nature of their relationship. Aside from they love each other, how they love each other and the degree that they love each other isn't actually critical to the story outside from the fact that they love each other. The kind of love almost isn't important except that it is because it develops the characters. So when at the end of the episode, when Jules basically picks up the Dylan uh, role... And she's going to get Margot out by God. You you know that this character loves that character and that they are going to get them out because they love them. And that matters in what whatever the degree. It's 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 very well done. It's I mean it's it's extremely well done. And I think that it's the testament to both of these 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 uh these young ladies who are relatively young in terms of of oh, thank of actors. I mean, they they kind of play to their age, which is nice. Uh, you know. Yes, and they are both so fantastic. We see wonderful moments of vulnerability and strength, and and cunning and determination and fear. They just we just get a wonderful range from both of these actresses. These actresses carry the show and they do extremely they they do some wonderful heavy lifting and they make it look effortless and i they have fucking they deserve long careers ahead of them should they want that oh yeah when you add in margot's father because he is such a a antagonist you know this this driven, I must, I must have what I need to survive, and you have it, and I will stop at nothing. That when they escape back into the real world, he follows them into the real world. Oh, and, and it's terrifying. And he is an unstoppable force. 
and it is extremely and and you have to understand that John Carroll Lynch if you again if you if you haven't seen the show and you're not recognizing the name he's a big guy I mean he's oh, he's, he's huge he's got presence I mean he's he's broad and he's tall and he's he's a little bit heavy set and he so he's and if he wasn't her father he would be fucking terrifying and because he is her father he's terrifying and so when he goes, when, when he follows her home, and suddenly he's there, and, and then, you know, Jules has gone home, and, and they've already had pieces of their memories eaten away, and so they're already disoriented. And then suddenly Seth is there to tell Jules that Margot is home, but her dad is there. It's this terrifying moment. And then Margot's mom comes home. Oh. And it's just this, this, I mean, here's, I, I feel, I feel so bad for Margot's mom. She's in, oh my the, God, se- yes. she's in the series for like 10 minutes. <laughs> and she gets beaten the shit out of and and her her husband kind of comes back and might have attacked her but surely that's not what happened that would be crazy yeah episode five is has a absolutely fantastic series of events where they get home and dad is there and dad will get his food one way or another and they try to solve the problem, and it doesn't fucking work. And they end up back in the house. Family Movie Nightmares, produced by Nikki Cave and Timothy Harvey for Just Some Guy Productions. All rights reserved.